listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 235. Congress has passed its infrastructure bill, but that piece of legislation is hampered by a dated understanding of what infrastructure even is. Today, we're going to talk about the other massive piece of legislation hung up in the Senate, Build Back Better, and why care work is such a key part of that bill and of our infrastructure writ large, whatever Joe Manchin and the Republicans think. But first, the news. Striketober, as many people were calling it, has been exciting, but two of the biggest potential strikes, IATSE, which you'll hear about from Michelle shortly, and Kaiser Permanente, seem to have been averted. At Kaiser, a coalition of unions bargained together for a new agreement, and after a year and a half of pandemic emergency, hospital workers up and down the West Coast were angry that their proposed contract offered smaller wage increases than the previous contract and contained a two-tier system that would pay new hires significantly less than current employees. Though details about the tentative agreement were not immediately forthcoming, the union confirmed it does scrap the two-tier proposal and contain wage increases and staffing proposals. Up to 52,000 workers could have walked out, but instead will be voting on the new contract over the next few weeks, and barring it being voted down, will continue to work as normal. However, there is a pretty big, though time-limited, strike happening at Kaiser as we are recording. According to KCRA Northern California, quote, more than 40,000 workers with SEIU, United Healthcare Workers West, and several other unions are striking in support of Local 39 operating engineers. Local 39, IUOE, represents about 600 operating engineers with Kaiser. This group has been on strike for more than two months. Organizers call their action the largest sympathy strike in the country. We are sympathy striking because Kaiser has lost its way and is putting its drive for profits over people, hurting our patients and union co-workers. The local 39 engineers play a critical role in maintaining our facilities and the equipment we use to take care of patients, Ethan Ruskin, a health educator at Kaiser Permanente Medical Center in San Jose, said in a release. Kaiser needs to put patients first and deliver a fair contract to the engineers, end quote. It is worth pausing on this and noting that while the deal at Kaiser and at IATSE mean that the biggest potential striketober walkouts didn't happen, it is still significant that the workers came to the very edge of striking in these two industries that, while very different, rely so much on workers' love for the job. Perhaps after a pandemic, loving your job just isn't enough? Certainly, the quit rates and the ongoing healthcare strikes around the country, including the nurses we've been following for eight whole months on strike at St. Vincent in Massachusetts, imply that maybe something is changing in our attitudes toward work. While, as I said recently on Twitter, I think it is a bit of a stretch to say we have a full-blown anti-work movement happening, perhaps we're beginning to turn the tide on the age of the labor of love. The International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, or IATSE, finally voted on the agreement reached between the union and representatives of big television and film studios. The deal was narrowly approved through the union's peculiar voting system. Although a majority of actual members of the union voted down the agreement, it ended up passing through an electoral college-like delegate system that weights votes according to chapter. So while eight out of 13 chapters approved the deal in the delegate vote, among members, just over 50% voted no, and about 49.6% voted yes. 
By the way, using a delegate system in lieu of a real majoritarian voting system appears to be a recurring theme. See our recent episode on the struggle within the United Auto Workers for one-member, one-vote voting. The New Deal includes a 54-hour rest period, so just over two days, and a 10-hour turnaround. That's the time off that workers get between shifts, and that applies as the baseline for all workers across different productions. It also boosts funding for the union's pension and health funds and raises starting wages for the lowest paid workers. According to Variety, among the five locals that voted no was the largest local, International Cinematographers Guild Local 600. That is also the local of the late Helena Hutchins, the cinematographer who was killed in a senseless and preventable accident on the set of the movie Smoke, when actor Alec Baldwin fired a prop gun that was thought to have blanks but instead had an actual bullet. Hutchins' death just added to the many layers of stress, frustration, and anger that has pervaded the membership in the lead-up to the vote. IATSE workers, who include cinematographers, set designers, makeup artists, and script coordinators, among others, had voted overwhelmingly to authorize a strike. The results of that vote were announced back in October, and it seemed for several days that IATSE really was going to go on strike and possibly disrupt the entire television and film industry. Many had been complaining about exhausting schedules, skipped break in meal times, and generally unsafe working conditions, and a huge majority seemed to be gunning for a strike. That didn't happen, and many have bristled at the tentative agreement, noting that it doesn't go far enough in addressing the long hours and brutal working conditions. The pandemic, which raised the risks of their work and also ended up giving people time off to think about what they really wanted out of their careers, compelled many craft workers to demand more from the studios. One IATSE member, Sarah Hughes, told Labor Notes ahead of the announcement of the vote result that she would have preferred a strike to this compromise deal. She said, quote, no one had really considered the concept of a strike because it's not within institutional memory, really. So when they had the authorization vote, there was a real come to Jesus moment for the membership. The fact that roughly half of members disapproved of the new contract ensures that this come to Jesus moment is going to last for a while. Also for this week's news, we're bringing you a story that is close to home for us. Our beloved editor and friend, Colin Kinnebura, joins me to talk about why, as a freelance journalist for France 24, he and many of his colleagues are on strike. So, Colin, in addition to being our wonderful and amazing editor here at Belabored, um, you have, well, at least one other job that we're here to talk about today. So first off, like, tell us what you do at France 24 and um, why it's important. Hey, Sarah. Yeah, that's right. One of my jobs, in fact, my steadiest job is at France 24. It's an international news channel, which I usually describe to people as sort of a French version of the BBC. And so uh, it's 24-hour news, international broadcasting in four languages and uh on the web as well. And so I work for the website covering overnights, French time, uh, usually two or three days a week. And um, I do this as a, a permalancer, essentially. I'm, you know, self-employed here in the States. Uh, and even when I was back working in France, um, I was doing the job that I did there, which was both working for the TV side and the web, also essentially as, as a permalancer. Um, there's a special category they have there for for freelancers called pigiste but it comes down to sort of the same thing which is no job security um few benefits and lots of pressure at work right so as we are recording this you are on strike from that job <laughs> at least which is the fun part of having multiple jobs but um yeah so tell us about the strike 
Yeah, that's right. So the strike started at midnight uh, Thursday, French time. And it's it's really the first of its kind, actually, at France 24. Um, the channel's been around since, I believe, around 2007. And there was a one-day strike in 2017 over much more limited demands. But this is a very different movement. That one was sort of led by one of the main unions, which is often fairly conciliatory towards management. This really just came out of anger from the bottom up, Uh, from, you know, everyone from the production assistants um, working in the newsroom to other sort of permalancers like me, many of them on TV, um, some of whom have been working there for 10 years uh, or more and still haven't been recognized with, you know, a proper contract. So this really bubbled up from below and it came together very quickly. Um, There was a no confidence vote in the management, I guess, last week or maybe already the week before now. And from there, things just kept building. One of the unions signed on to support the strike. That's the CGT, which is often sort of the most militant union in France. And um, right now, there's a committee that's meeting with management and negotiating over some of the core demands. Um, there's supposed to be uh, another meeting Friday morning. So we'll see where things go from there. So without asking you to explain all of the differences between French labor law and American labor law, but assuming that a lot of our audience is in the U.S. still and probably doesn't know, um, what are sort of the rules basically around union recognition in a job like this and striking in France? It's true that <laughs> it's true that the French labor context is is pretty different than the American one and complicated. The main difference being that there are typically several unions represented at any given workplace, and you don't necessarily need to be a member of of a union to get some of the the protections. Um, but it's not so much a right to work situation. Uh, like you might get in the U.S. because so many of the labor protections are just baked into your everyday rights at work. Um, That does include the right to strike. And so even um, freelancers on the French side are sort of protected in striking. Here in the U.S., I am in a sort of much more ambiguous status, and I don't really want to get into the details but the the bottom the bottom line is that um, those of us here are, are are really going out on a limb uh, to support the movement. But we felt like it was really crucial to show that you know there's there's strong support and that we face many of the same problems that our our coworkers in France do. Yeah. So how many people are outside of France? Are there many in the U.S. where where like the permalancer is mostly based? Well, most of the staff, both freelance and salaried, are based in Paris, and that's really where the movement kicked off. But it's an international news channel, and there are correspondents all over the world. And I think one of the main concerns animating this whole strike is that, you know, France 24 has ambitions of being a world-class um international news channel. And I think in many ways it is, but the budget doesn't always live up to that. And often they're asking us to do more and more with less. And I think that is really the common theme that runs through um, 
basically this this anger that's bubbled up within pretty much everyone at the at the channel um from us on the web and on tv scattered around the world to even you know people who i i often see more as being part of the management side you know who are responsible for scheduling our shifts week to week. The point is everyone is being forced to do more and more without being fairly compensated for it. And um, at a certain point, we just couldn't take it anymore. So that's that's the binding theme here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so for the last several years, of course, we've seen a wave of unionizations in journalism and even in freelance journalism in the States. Um, so how do you sort of situate that or relate this to that? And have conditions in France also been getting more precarious for journalists? I would say that conditions have definitely been getting more precarious. There are a lot of parallels to the situation in the States. There have been, you know, major cuts, um, cutbacks in newsrooms. Uh, Journalism jobs have been slashed left and right. And even when jobs aren't necessarily cut, you know, Budgets have decreased, and again, we're asked to do more with less. So that I see as a direct parallel between France and the States. In terms of unionization, I don't think there's actually been a movement in France analogous to the one that we've had in the States over the last few years. Typically in major newsrooms, there will already be unions represented. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're very active or that um, most people who work there day to day have any relationship with the unions. Even I, in the year or so that I was working for France 24 in France, was really not engaged with the union. And I think that, in fact, most of the people who are leading the movement right now haven't been either. So it's, it's a much more ambiguous relationship, I guess. There isn't there isn't a direct line between unionization and, um, you know, this willingness to go on strike and, and to push back against bad working conditions. But I think that the, the conditions themselves are increasingly universal. All right. Anything else you want um, belabored listeners to know about uh, how they treat you or, you know, how we treat you? <laughs> <laughs> no, just that I think many freelancers can relate to sort of, you know, the constant juggling that comes with um, Mm -hmm. being in in precarious positions with with no job security and, you know, and having to cobble together a living constantly. Um, I think that's that's really come to the fore this week for me um, between juggling this strike and, and other jobs. But if we can at least win some concessions at France 24, I think that will, you know, help steer things in the right direction. That was our beloved editor, Colin Kittaburra. And if you appreciate Colin's hard work the way we do, you can kick us some extra funds at patreon.com slash belabored. We would love to be able to make this work a bigger part of all of our work lives. And that's what we need your help for. Thailand has long been known for playing a key role in labor trafficking networks and labor abuses involving migrant workers from elsewhere in Southeast Asia. But Thailand's public sector workers are also under siege now. In recent years, the State Railway Union of Thailand has clashed with the government as it has tried to clamp down on the union's militant leadership. The union has mobilized members to push for improved safety measures on Thai railways. In response to the union's organizing activities, the State Transit Authority fired several union leaders several years ago, setting off a long legal battle. 
More recently, this has culminated in 13 transit union leaders being sentenced to prison on charges brought by the National Anti-Corruption Commission, which accused them of, quote, omission of official duties, unquote, when they refused to drive trains with faulty safety equipment. I spoke with David Welsh, an organizer with the Solidarity Center based in Bangkok, about the union leader's ongoing legal case and what it means for Thailand's labor movement as a whole. The trajectory of this labor dispute seems to go back more than a decade, right? It does. Uh, So initially, this is, we're going back to 2009. And during that period, um, there were a number of safety concerns with the State Railway of Thailand, and also uh, then accidents which actually killed passengers and didn't kill drivers, but drivers and staff on the train, most of whom are, are unionized through uh, state state union mechanisms, were complaining, um, not, not protesting, but complaining about clear safety issues on the train itself. Um, as a response to this, the State Railway Union of Thailand goes by the acronym SRUT, um, didn't strike, didn't protest, particularly in part because um, this is another labor issue. They're restricted from doing so under Thai labor law. They're sort of circumscribed in terms of what state employees can do. Freedom of association is limited, et cetera. So there are public safety campaigns. Uh, this embarrassed the Thai government to an extent that um, civil uh, – Civil suits were brought um, and labor labor sort of court uh, were brought by by the state railway of Thailand. This went on for, you know, in various guises, up and down appeal mechanisms, um, finding uh, imposing civil civil suits against the leadership of the state railway union of Thailand for striking, for assembling, for protesting in a way that was um, circumscribed by law, which was questionable anyway. But it, it was it really became a sort of harassment, but was limited to civil penalties. So up and down, I would say basically the next eight years or so, uh, under various guises, the union would win cases, lose cases. The National Human Rights Commission came out in favor of the unions that they hadn't violated any law, et cetera, et cetera. But in the meantime, um, 13 state railway union of Thailand's were had enormous um, civil suits imposed on them for violating uh, violating restrictions on their own freedom of association. And then out of nowhere, uh, just to get sort of the dagger in, um, the statute of limitations on any criminal component to this was was ending. And a couple of weeks before it was ending, a body called the National Anti-Corruption Commission, um, which was established to police senior government officials, parliamentarians, um, filed a criminal case under a very obscure provision under the Thai criminal code that, in fact, this behavior dating back to 2009 was criminal. And if if, if the 13 union leaders were found guilty of that, they would face prison sentences. This was equally outrageous, but just shows... I think the level of harassment, the level of anger on the Thai government and the important person in all of this, obviously, we, the Solidarity Center and the international trade union community and the and the domestic Thai trade union community are supporting all 13 union leaders. But the leader of the state, the most important component here really is the leader of the state railway union of Thailand is also essentially the leader of the overall Thai labor movement. Uh, so we've given so extremely prominent. Um, and he's been a thorn on the side of the government um, on labor, on sort of domestic labor issues, but also controversially really promoting the rights of migrant workers 
in Thailand, the government does not want migrant workers to have any freedom of association rights or to be involved in unions. They are employed in the most dangerous, um, um, vulnerable sort of uh, capacities here in Thailand, seafood, agriculture, etc. So um, the more the more public he became, the more powerful he became, the greater the legal uh, tools that were used against him were. And so up until two, up until two and a half years ago, this criminal case was launched. I arrived in Thailand almost exactly a year ago, say four to 14 months, and a couple of weeks into the, the posting, um, the court of first instance, so the lower court found them guilty um, of this very obscure criminal offense and sentenced them to four years minus a year in jail. Um, the trade union community, we and the international trade union community quickly mobilized to bolster the legal team. Um, to begin diplomatic outreach, to have an amicus brief, which was endorsed by a number of international uh, legal groups and the International Trade Union Confederation, et cetera, et cetera, which was submitted and, and filed an appeal on the case. So, um, all, and, and to seek bail for all 13 of these <coughs> union leaders. So, uh, over the last 12 months, and particularly the last, I would say, two months, that's been the major effort. Um, uh, as the appeal is still pending, all 13 are still out on bail. It's becoming um, a, a huge issue here in, in Thailand and Bangkok. Um, and I can say, you know, as, as recently as two weeks ago, uh, there was a primary briefing at their request for tw 12 locally based embassies here in Thailand, as well as the UN at a very senior level to see what advocacy measures they could um, uh, sort of partake in, let's say, uh, with the Thai government to explain that there'll be repercussions diplomatically, economically, and just in terms, you know, in terms of Thailand's public rep uh, reputation, if in fact they imprison not just 13 union leaders, but in fact the, the overall leader of the Thai labor movement on, on the basis not of corruption or of what you would normally constitute criminality, but, but for basic trade union activities. So to say it's a political, a political case would be an understatement. It's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a political hit job and, and being done so far with a degree of impunity. But it's moving to a new level now as, as we get closer to a decision. And as I say, all 13 are out on, on appeal, uh, out on bail. Uh, the appeal court and COVID has impacted this. The appeal court, we, we believe from lawyers, should reach a decision sometime in the next two months. That's not the last. We've made it clear to the powers that be also that – this, this won't end the matter, that there'll be an appeal to the Supreme Court of Thailand. Uh, and the Supreme Court is, I, you know, I guess, understandably, probably the most sophisticated court in Thailand. Um, and so hopefully some of the politics from it will be removed. But up to this point, clearly, there's been political interference in the decision. Clearly, the courts have been advised to simply do, do whatever you have to do to justify some sort of imprisonment and conviction. And um, and we shall see what the next couple of months hold. Right. So can you, um, can we zoom out a little bit and just talk about the state of the labor movement in Thailand overall? Obviously, there's a history of suppression with this particular trade union, but uh, when people think about Thai politics, they probably think of like successive uh, coups and like a yeah, lot of yeah. a lot of chaos and um and corruption, but uh, how does that filter down to labor relations in Thailand? Yeah, so I mean, I I, I would say from the perspective of someone who's uh, been in the region for 16 years, and I've I've 
I've been the country director for the AFL-CIO Solidarity Centre in, in hotspots that garner a lot more attention um, in terms of their trade union movement and, and labour struggles, et cetera, et cetera. So Bangladesh, Cambodia, Indonesia, uh, even Malaysia. And, and Thailand um, often doesn't fit, fit the bill in terms of what's done to Thai union leaders and the Thai labour movement is sort of almost done with a smile, uh, to use a metaphor, rather than rather than the violence, the, the physical violence and assaults you see in other countries. But but it still is widespread, um, extremely damaging for workers trying to exercise their rights. Um, you have unions in every major sector um, and every major supply chain um, th- that Westerners would think about exists in Thailand, huge automotive sector, huge fishery sectors. So all the shrimp, all the fish you're getting, there's a very good chance that it's coming from Thailand. And it's and in doing so, it's a very good chance that uh, migrant workers, most of them Burmese and Cambodian, treated horrendously in, in under conditions that I would characterize as modern-day slavery, uh, are producing those. Um, there's still a garment sector here in Thailand. Obviously, the tourism industry is huge. Uh, that accommodates mostly Westerners coming, you know, in, in non-COVID times, coming in the hundreds of thousands, um, uh, millions, actually, I mean, uh, to Thailand. Um, state, state workers are able to unionize, but, but in sort of a circumscribed manner. Um, and that's, that's not so unusual in the sense that they can't, you know, if they're deemed essential employees, yeah. they don't have uh, the full right that's, to strike. That's a lot in the U.S. too, I think. Yeah, I know exactly. So it's not, but but I would say in Thailand, it's 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 adopted. It's a it's it's interpreted pretty broadly, let's say. So, um, but but the the unionization rate is still one of the lowest in the region. But a lot of that is uh, because restrictions on migrant workers are so intense, and those who need unions so so much uh, are in fact migrant workers who who are toiling in in the industries that a are crucial to, crucial to the Thai economy, crucial to Thai exports, um, but B, um, you know, are, are and this has particularly been so under COVID, have been are, are sort of in legal limbo in most cases. So there have been great efforts by the Thai union movement to incorporate migrant workers into unions, particularly in the seafood sector and increasingly in the agricultural sector. And this has become very contentious. Um, Thai labor law. There, there are reforms underway. We, other unions, are working with uh, parliamentary groups, progressive parliamentary groups, who, who, interestingly enough, have sort of gained not just a foothold, but have taken over um, important parliamentary committees like the Labor Parliamentary Committee to redraft Thailand's labor laws. Repeatedly, the the international community, the ILO, have called on the Thai government to do a better job ratifying ILO conventions to make their labor laws compliant with international labor law norms, and this has been extremely slow going. So while the Thai trade union movement um, is still, I would say, the largest sort of civil society group, um, they're also artificially, the the percentage is still artificially low, uh, mainly because of, of, you know, the deliberate way in which the Thai government um, restricts freedom of association and makes it so difficult legally to organize. That was David Welsh, the Solidarity Center. The Build Back Better bill, the so-called human infrastructure bill that the House of Representatives just passed on Friday, would make significant investments in home and community-based care. 
These are the home health aides and other direct care workers who tend to seniors and people with disabilities. As we've reported before on Belabored, this has long been an undervalued and overlooked component of the healthcare workforce. And for decades, home care workers, the vast majority of them, low-income women and women of color, were excluded from key federal labor protections, including even the federal minimum wage. Though there have been incremental improvements in the industry's working conditions over the years, for instance, the federal minimum wage now applies to home care workers, and more home care workers have organized and even joined unions over the years, home care workers today are typically still earning poverty wages. The version of the Build Back Better bill that the House of Representatives just passed would put some $150 billion into Medicaid-supported home care services as part of a broader investment in social programs, from affordable housing to subsidized health care to preschool. In turn, labor advocates hope that the additional investment in the home care workforce will help lift up pay scales and provide for more training. To put Build Back Better in context, I spoke with Shade Dozan, Senior Director of Development at Caring Across Generations, a labor and community advocacy group for home care workers and families, and it's also linked to the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Maybe you can just start with um, your first impressions of what did make it into the version of the bill that the House is going over right now. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So I will say that what a way we've come, right? (laughs) So that is how I will open this up. Um, For some grounding, or I guess some policy context, I feel like we definitely have a level of basic understanding for sure. So what is in this bill? Um, The majority of the bill's $150 billion investment in home care will strengthen Medicaid, the existing Medicaid program, with a smaller portion um, that bolsters other services such as the National Family Caregiver Support Program, which from as I'm from Caring Across Generations is certainly um, key to us. And the bill, the bill's provisions altogether kind of pay for themselves. The tax increase proposal would raise an additional trillion over 10 years. And um, that's according to a recent report from the Joint Committee on Taxation. So what does that number mean for um, home care workers? Do we have a sense of how it will be spent um, or how what parts of the home care infrastructure will be invested in? It truly is historic. It's historic. It's transformational. It is a significant investment, specifically As it relates to HCBS, um, Home and Community-Based Services, um, the Build Back Agenda raises wages and provides more training for direct home care workforce folks. Um, The majority of the country's like 2.4 million home care workers. So we're talking about a significant part of the population here. So the majority of the the country's 2.4 million home care workers are women of color, who have not seen a pay increase in decades. So raised wages um, is certainly a key um, proponent of this bill. And, you know, these these home care workers have currently, they currently earn about $20,000 a year on average um, and have no, have very little to no benefits such as paid leave. So by raising wages and providing training, we're directly impacting the economy. So that that's one key point. 
do we have a figure on what the wages will be or is it a, <laughs> they have a pay scale range there? Yeah, I, I can't say for sure. I mean, I think that we have to think about what implementation looks like um, and we have to name that this bill as it currently stands is still, it, it still needs active uh, implementation guardrails. So just for context, um, what are wages like now for home care workers? Yeah, I mean, like, so like, like $20,000 a year, like minimum wage is is a generous way to name it. So $20,000 for a full-time active um, year over year salary. Okay, so basically... uh, a typical home care worker is living in poverty, probably, or below the poverty Absolutely. line. Well below the poverty line. Yeah. One of the things that, that you hear when speaking with home care workers and all direct care workers, really, is they talk about their working conditions more broadly, like really long hours, often not being able to take breaks. And even when they are theoretically entitled to breaks, um, their work arrangements are such that, you know, they can't really leave the bedside of the person that they're taking care of and that sort of thing. Are there additional protections for people with that? Or is that something that's going to be hashed out when this the, these provisions are actually executed? Yeah, I think that there are things that are in the bill. I you know, the bill provides a really solid framework that was developed off of a framework that still needs to be um, flushed out. I will say that if immigration provisions are included, um, which is a perfect, you know, it's one oftentimes feeling as though you can't leave the bedside is also due to job security, right? Like what's going to happen if I do X, Y, Z? Um, so one one thing to note is that if immigration provisions are included, you know, Build Back Better could provide lasting protections on millions of our um, immigrant community, including domestic workers. So there's wages, there's trainings, there's, you know, a, a multiple layer of, of thought um, that kind of goes into to this package that I, you know, I appreciate. By strengthening Medicaid, does that mean that um, these investments will be put in Medicaid programs that are administered by individual states? Like in New York, uh, Medicaid pays for um, home health aids, but it, it's administered through the state. So the state can pass rules and yeah. you know, is that how it's going to work? Thanks for raising that up. Yeah. So so this package goes through, so this bill goes through to state federal, to state implementation. So the bill would go to the states, and then it would be implemented um, that way. I, w- I will say that there are, within the agenda, there are um, clear benefits, especially as it relates to Medicaid. Um, I mean, one one portion of it is that we're talking about a mandate to clear Medicaid waitlist so that, you know, more older adults, veterans, people with disabilities can access those high-quality home care uh, to transition from nursing institutions back home. Um, or, or even to stay in their homes and their communities longer. What about for people who are not on Medicaid? Uh, I'm talking about clients. Um, what is their access to home-based health care? Are they having to pay out of pocket? Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of, I'm for me, so now I'm thinking about my particular situation. So yes, I work at Caring Across Generations. I also am a family caregiver. Um, and my parents are in the boat where they do not qualify um, for Medicaid. I, I so I want to I want to 
talk about Medicaid, raise that up, and then also talk about uh, expanded resources um, for folks, um, specifically family caregivers that are also trying to navigate that situation while not qualifying for Medicaid. So the short answer is that this particular provision requires you to be on Medicaid in order to be eligible for that waitlist clearance. But that in itself is a really huge lift because there's, you know, over 820, 820,000 people who qualify for HCBS um, through Medicaid that are on waiting lists. Um, and that, that number is likely going to increase as the population of adults, um, especially aged 65 and older, are, gonna, are anticipated to double. So I will say that is one piece. And then I, I will also say that we still have a long way to go. And that this particular bill really focuses on the existing Medicaid program and doesn't yet focus on the folks outside of that. Um, but it does focus on the smaller portion of other services that, that are, for example, the National Family Caregiver Support Program. And I think the, the Build Back Better bill, the framework includes expansions of Medicaid as well. So that presumably might make more people eligible for benefits. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of further work, I mean, the, the you mentioned um, the other legislation that would benefit home health care workers. Is that, or I guess maybe it would be for all home and community-based care providers, Um can you talk about other legislation that that has been proposed that might um, that might do what uh, that might pick up where this bill leaves off? <laughs> so this this is actually within the Build Back Better agenda, the um, expanded resources and paid leave. I think you also mentioned um, earlier, specifically as it relates to workers, but also to family caregivers. So um, when we think about care work, we think about it from both a paid and unpaid vantage point. Um, so what Build Back Better has built into it, the bill also includes funding for the National Family Caregiver Support Program, um, which is an, an Older Americans Act program that is getting additional funding. Um, and that's part of the, the grants that go out to states as well to provide services for family caregivers. Mm-hmm. So I think in the past we, we've covered efforts to qualify many home health care aids for coverage under the Fair Labor Standards Act and uh, struggles to qualify for minimum wage and overtime and things like that. What has the progress been on those things? They are entitled to receive at least the federal minimum wage. Um, but that, <laughs> that, that, yeah, that, that does exist. Um, but once again, when we look at what that provides and the, the average income from, for workers, we're we're still talking about like twenty twenty thousand dollars. I think yeah. the plane took a second and yeah, we've done that. The Build Back Better framework. There was some controversy over whether to include immigration provisions, and I, I think I recall there had been proposals to have a bill that would specifically. In the past, there had been proposals for a legislation that would specifically um, provide immigration relief for um, home care workers. Is anything like that in the cards, or are you sort of is everything still hinging on whether or not the Build Back Better framework will include immigration relief for home care workers and many other workers? Yeah, I would I would certainly say that we 
we are hinging on Build Back Better being a first step, almost like if you think about it as a as a down payment on how we navigate around care. Um, so those provisions are currently not in here at this moment. <laughs> I'll say that. I'll say that hopefully. Right. Can you clarify for our listeners the difference between a paid home health care aide who's hired from the outside and a family caregiver and uh, my understanding is that there often are family caregivers who do receive some kind of wage for the work that they put in, but it's just a different arrangement because you're caring for someone from your in your family. Yeah, I would I would say that the, the distinction is really around pay and um, pay and training. Um, that that's to very very much so simplify the difference between the two. Um, a caregiver. A family caregiver is usually a family member um, that takes care of their loved one, um, either like a sick child or a person with a disability or, or their aging loved one, while a home health aide um, usually has obtained uh, some sort of training and also is paid, um, which is really the distinction between the two mm-hmm. in a very simple slide, <laughs> simple mm-hmm. slide way. But do family caregivers also receive, don't they sometimes receive subsidies? Yes. So this is part of, there are subsidies that you can apply for um, as a family caregiver. There's also, and even within that, there's, there are kind of unique obstacles and barriers because one of them is the assumption of being able to navigate that system to receive the subsidy. Um, which is something that we're working to kind of help folks navigate around. Um, but yeah, there are current subsidies that exist for uh, payment and even training as well. Um, that's part of what's inside of the family National Family Caregiver Support Program is also right. training in addition yeah. to a pipeline to those subsidies. I just find this really interesting just because by providing some kind of compensation for people who are caring for people within their family, it's kind of a recognition, albeit an inadequate one, right, of the traditionally unwaged labor, right, that goes into caring for family members. And I guess that's sort of the theme of the entire Build Back Better program, which, you know, is seen as the human infrastructure bill, right? Um, So as part of this movement, where do you think we are in terms of the society's recognition of home care as quote unquote real work? Um, Or do you still feel like there are many areas in which this kind of labor um, continues to be devalued or treated unequally? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) can't the answer be both? I think that we are making significant progress. I would say that we have come so far, I think even where we were 24 months ago to where we are today, the fact that care and home care and caregiving, these type of words are in um, public consumption, like in media and social media. And the fact that we're having this conversation is, is a testimony to how far we have come collectively to understand care and the value of care. And we are also we also have a lot of work to do. I think that this this agenda, the Build Back Better agenda, um, has has given us a solid framework. We are moving in the right direction. 
I think that, you know, women, I know that women of color has particular, have mobilized, have advocated and organized and voted to help make this historic moment of progress possible. Um, Caring Across has been working towards this vision for 10 years. And I think that Build Back Better brings us one step closer <laughs> into realizing a future um, where America's home care workers, um, the majority of which are, you know, mentioned are women of color that actually receive closer to family sustaining wage. Yeah. And just in terms of numbers, I think um, when Biden was on the campaign trail, he had proposed spending something like $400 billion on home and community-based services, but um, yeah. that's been whittled down to $150 billion, So. <laughs> Yes, four hundred billion was certainly was certainly a number that we um, that we heard. Um, and I, you know, let's let's get there. Let's get there. Let's let's get beyond that. Let's let's really create a care infrastructure that is is set up in a way that is sustainable and set up in a way that we will all be able to receive quality and affordable care services at home. The the Build Back Agenda currently really supports the waiting list, the wait, like a few wages, like we're, we're moving towards that. Um, so yes, this is a down payment. We're, we're working, we're working on it. In terms of the next few years or a few decades um, for the home care workforce um, is expected to grow pretty substantially, right? Where do you see the workforce going? And also we're seeing more and more workers becoming unionized in places like, you know, California and Illinois um, and other places. So where do you see the, both the workforce and I guess the, the home care worker labor movement going? Yeah, I mean, there's something beautiful about a collective voice. There's something impactful, and I'm I'm grateful that we are moving in that direction. I think that the expansions, one mechanism of that, is the collective voice, and the another parallel mechanism is the continued expansion, expansion of home care through Medicaid, or through Medicare, and continuing to create universal programs um, that have built-in mechanisms for training, wages, a pipeline to more home care workers. Um, yeah, to, to making sure that their good jobs and value jobs um, is key to, to ensuring that workforce workforce's sustainability as our population moves. Could you talk about the special barriers that undocumented home care workers might face? Would they also be paid through Medicaid? I'm not sure how it would work. Um, or are they generally folks that are working for people paying out of pocket, just working privately? There are many injustices faced by um, immigrant domestic workers. Yes, there's also pay, right? They're being paid less than minimum wage, being paid under the table, um, denial of pay, with withholding of pay, Um for work that's already been put in. The level of safety is also heightened, um, access to training. And then, you know, just many, I mean, like the list is pretty substantial. 
the the restrictions on breaks, the restrictions on time off, the the job security factors of if if something goes wrong on the job or if you know this if their employer wants to report them that is a high risk factor. So even by showing up to work, you're putting yourself at risk, that that concept. Even your point around unionizing, right? Um, that there are employers that are actively discouraging union activity, leveraging the knowledge of undocumentation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that in itself is, you know, is has so many layers of injustice. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you say employer, are you talking about um, home care workers who are employed through an agency um, or individual clients? Because I mean, one of the interesting things about this field is that the clients are not exactly their employers, right? Because they're being paid by the state. Right. Both. Both. Yeah. We <laughs> um, have yeah, both. There's the, there's the agency. So there's the institutional employer. And then there's also the in-home employer, even though that may not be who you directly get your paycheck from. You still have to navigate uh, the internal, the internal housing environment, the internal employee. Yeah. And could you, uh, could you talk a little bit about how these issues have evolved during the pandemic? Um, I remember interviewing a home care worker um, who was working through the pandemic and she ended up like buying her own hazmat suit online and just wearing it to, to, to meet her clients every day because um, she wasn't really getting any support from her employer or um, anything like that. So um, can you talk about the stories that you've heard or um, what you've observed in terms of how home health care workers who are doing labor that is in normal times is uh, is pretty intimate, right? Providing really personal care. Um, how does that work during a pandemic? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it exacerbated the issues for, for certainly. I think particularly as it relates to home health agencies, um, the, the already challenging situations and environments that workers face were exacerbated. The idea around safety, the idea around... Um, the space that you're entering and whether or not you receive um, protection, whether or not the, the person that you're caring for is wearing a mask, whether like we're talking for the, for a greater part of the pandemic, folks were going to work during an active public health crisis, putting themselves far at risk for exposure, um, navigating whether or not you're considered an essential worker. Um, and what that means for your own family and what that means for whether or not you go home to see your loved ones, knowing that you you have entered another home and put yourself at risk. What are some things that um, that home care workers have been have been talking about in terms of what they what they want to see in the bill and, and also um, things that they're demanding? I mean, issues like wages and training, those are. Those all seem sort of abstract. Are there are there specific things that they want to learn, or specific benefits that they need, or um, you know what's what's at the top of their minds right now? Yeah, I mean, I think there is there is a center conversation that that anchors this around paid leave, 
um, many home care workers were were forced to make a trade-off between working or putting their own health at risk, or if a family member um, was sick, whether or not they show up. And so even beyond the pandemic, having to choose between work and pay in order to care for yourself or your loved one, um, that is the paid leave narrative is, is integral. So raises, training, and then also paid leave. Like that's a very clear through line. Yeah. And um, paid leave is, of course, one of the trickier provisions of the Build Back Better framework. (laughs) So, I mean, right right now where we are, we're we're four weeks, four weeks of paid leave, four weeks in. Um, But yeah, I would say paid leave is certainly um, critical for for women of color in particular, uh, but speaking more directly to to direct care workers, because you know they're they're more likely to be in these part time or full time and even still low wage jobs and not having access to those sick days. So that is that is key. So wages, training, paid leave, um, job protection, security around immigration hopefully Mm -hmm. may be included but those are those are good places to start um and what type of training um does this usually involve is it stuff like um is it sort of medical related or um other types of training that they need for their job yeah so there's a there's a few technical skill um trainings that are included in this um one thing that I think about, so I am, I'm a family caregiver. I've mentioned this. I'm also an employer. Um, I've also, I've employed a few different types of domestic workers, including home care workers. And I call myself an employee, acknowledging that once again, we're going through the agency. So even see, so that's, that's a perfect example of like how folks see themselves. Um, but how, how to lift someone even um, lifting someone that needs care in a certain way is a very clear tra- training point and access to to service that some direct home care uh, workers need. So, like tech, there's like a technical skill set there as well that also needs to be valued and invested in. Um, and and I think about that moment of of working with someone and and learning from them how to to pick up. Um, or assist my mom um, is a is a is a clear through line. I think the home health care and a lot of direct care workers. Um, I think we often overlook the risk of injury as sort of a constant hazard um, in their day to day work activities. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and see, this is going this is going back to if you and I've heard I've heard um, stories of folks that have hurt themselves. Um, doing one of the key points of their job every day and not being able to not show up the next day, having to, I've, I've, I've um, one woman shared with me that she hurt her back, went to, she got off maybe around closer to 8 PM, had to travel about 90 minutes out, went to the emergency room, checked into the emergency room to care for herself and then got out of the emergency room a little bit closer to 6 AM. And then, had to go back to work. That's the the same day after being released and still navigating on care. 
Um, so there's a couple different things that play in there. Um, and also not necessarily feeling like she could afford the, the medication that she was provided. So there's, those are three main points around time off, training, wages, that, that interlock right there. The people who take care of elders and people with disabilities 24-7, them not being able to take off like a single paid day off to take care of themselves is just so absurd. Yeah. I think about part of the narrative, right? Part of the reason why we have been able to even move this far with this agenda um, and, and see it in the public narrative is the level of discourse and story sharing and media outlets that are covering care, both paid and unpaid, and, and shifting the public narrative around value. So when we see that, we also see how public framing impacts policy, and we're seeing that in real time. Do you have any thoughts on, on sort of the uniqueness of care work and the labor movement of home care workers in the sense that it's not a traditional sort of labor employer context. It's a different kind of arrangement in the sense that people are paid through both the state and the person, the household that they're caring for. You're sort of advocating for both sides of that equation? Yes, absolutely. So they're, they're within the domestic worker, I guess, umbrella, home care workers are certainly unique in the sense that they are holding both an institutional or agency employment and then also um, responsible and accountable to their household employer. So it's holding both, um, which is certainly a different space to navigate. Um, There's also navigating an assumption of agency pay, like so the, the... the person receiving care may also very often like assume that this person is being paid like an equitable wage um, because they're being paid by an agency and like they're being taken care of versus a domestic worker such as like a cleaner who is having direct contact with their household employer who's also the person who is um, directly paying their full uh, check. So, so there certainly are, are more to not like there's, there's nuances there that don't exist in other spaces of the domestic worker workforce. Um, Karen Cross focuses on care broadly, very similar like National Domestic Workers Alliance focuses on domestic workers um, in that umbrella term. But with Karen Cross Generation, we focus not just on care workforce paid, but also unpaid. So holding both pockets of the paid care workforce and then the unpaid family caregivers and how very often they live in in a symbiosis because family caregivers are often taking care of their loved ones and do rely on paid home care workers to also support their loved ones, creating these like care squad networks that are really important and vital to how we effectively care. I mean, all domestic work, I guess, is uh, sort of challenges a lot of assumptions that we have about, you know, what is the workplace? What counts as, you know, waged work? What is it? It is a different landscape. You know, I think about the level of trust that occurs in my relationships with 
domestic workers and, and home, home care workers in particular, as a family caregiver, there's this level of trust and belief in their ability to do their job well, but also that if they need something, um, that they feel supported. So I, I think about, um, I think about medication management as a, as a perfect point to think about. And one of the training opportunities that um, we talked about a little bit earlier that's within the provisions are around um, potentially a pipeline to your CNA. Um, and that is a special skill set or certification that, that directly would support um, medication management. And that is something that would be immensely helpful to me as a family caregiver and my loved one when we're working with a home care worker that they feel confident and well-trained in um, in that aspect of their work. So that's like another example of um, what what could be possible here. So it's more of a family effort, I guess. We really care squad. You know, you have your unpaid family caregivers and your, your direct care workers and all together between all of you, um, including your medical professionals, you can figure out a care plan that works well best for you and or your loved one. If only home care workers were really seen as part of the healthcare system. Well, you know, I think about like things like, like, uh, so again, thing, I have, I have two parents that are, uh, that currently need heightened levels of care. And I think about, you know, having a home care, uh, a home, a home care worker that knows things like, you know, like identifying signs of like dementia, like that's a training opportunity there. As, and that's a transferable skill set as they go from household to household, um, being able to support the the individual they're caring for in that way, like identifying signs of dementia, the, the, their own self wellness, um, you know, even even down to things like uh, tube cleaning, like all of those are are areas where, with additional supports and additional investments, we could really change the trajectory of how we age in our homes and how we live well. We have a chance here. We really do. We have a chance to invest in care. And when I say invest, like this is one of many investments I hope that we make, um, that we are on the trajectory to really change the care workforce, but also just care at large. we are we are moving and you know let's let's keep going keep pushing you're listening to belabored a descent magazine podcast links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org that was Shade Dozan of caring across generations And now it's time for everybody's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. The piece I chose today literally made me ARG because I've been obsessed with port truck drivers for most of the past decade. In fact, actually spent part of a rare dinner with my mother, who is not exactly a labor nerd, explaining port trucking deregulation. And now here's friend of the show, E. Tammy Kim, in the New York Times magazine, hanging out with port truckers in South Carolina and explaining where the labor is in the so-called supply chain crisis. The piece is titled, All Eyes Are on the Nation's Ports. Can Truck Drivers Make the Most of It? 
The nation's ports, of course, have a complicated history, particularly in the South, where Tammy was reporting. She writes, quote, During the 18th century, many of the goods handled in Charleston were human. Around 40% of the enslaved people brought to North America arrived by ship at Charleston Harbor. This fact is not lost on local dock workers and truckers today, most of whom are Black. On the cargo ships coming into the port of Charleston, people who looked like me were the cargo. Now we control the cargo, Leonard Riley Jr., a Union longshoreman and activist, told me. End quote. The port trucking situation is a particularly key link in the modern shipping process. Tammy explains, quote, intermodal port truckers connect our industrial dots, driving containers from one terminal to another or between rail yards and warehouses. Unlike UPS drivers or dock workers, however, the vast majority of these local short haul drivers are independent contractors who lack the rights of legal employees. As owner-operators, they are paid $50 or $80 or $100 per container load, which means time works against them. The fewer boxes they move, the less pay they take home. Until 1980, port truckers were generally employees. A shipping company would contract with a trucking fleet to move goods from a port terminal to a warehouse. That fleet would then dispatch an employee. But the Motor Carrier Act of 1980, combined with containerization, upended this system, effectively converting most port drivers into freelancers, end quote. Those drivers are now responsible for buying their own trucks or sometimes leasing them from the companies they work for, and those companies, of course, deny that they are employees at all. Longtime listeners to the show have heard from port truckers before, from the West Coast and the Port of Savannah, talking about why they are fighting what they consider, and some judges have concurred, to be misclassification. Unsurprisingly, these lousy conditions have led to something of a trucker shortage, and the pandemic has made all that worse, Tammy writes. Quote, these old conditions have now converged with something new, a global economy remade by the pandemic. Americans are shopping more than ever before. Factories are overwhelmed. Raw materials are scarce. According to Charmaine Chua, a logistics scholar at the University of California, Santa Barbara, just-in-time manufacturing has proved fragile. The nightly news regularly airs footage of container ships queued up along the coasts, yet this is only one sign of trouble in the supply chain. The South Carolina Ports Authority, which spans three container terminals in and around Charleston, has seen a 19% increase in container volume so far this year. The trend holds at other ports across the country. Containers can't be moved fast enough. If you go into the port and you get in the wrong line, you can't make a U-turn. You're surrounded by trucks on all sides, Richard Rezek, an owner-operator in New Jersey, told me. With this has come a jump in turn time or the measure of how long it takes a trucker to enter a port with one load and exit with another. Every delay comes at great cost to individual drivers. Taking a box off of you and putting a box on you used to be 17 to 20 minutes. It's 30 minutes now or an hour or two hours, Mike Wiedenhammer, a trucker in Charleston, told me. So far this year, my revenue is down 40%. Port truckers are tired of losing time and money. They are organizing like never before under the banner of all hours worked, all hours paid to demand recognition and a piece of record revenues in retail and shipping. As the cost to ship containers has more than tripled since last year, why, they ask, do they seem to be the only part of the supply chain earning less, not more? End quote. It's worth noting, of course, that the port truckers were indeed deregulated way back in 1980, meaning this whole model of making the workers pay all of the costs of their job while being controlled and dispatched by a central location is not something that Uber came up with. Anyway, 
Tammy describes a day in the life of one trucker. Quote, after Mr. Gordon finished up at Wando Welch, the motor carrier he works for, RTR, dispatched him to the Norfolk Southern Rail Yard to get another container. The carrier paid him about 75% of what it received from Maersk, Haypag, Lloyd, I'm probably butchering that, or the South Carolina Ports Authority per container. But rates had not kept up with delays caused by congestion, and safety laws limited him to a certain number of hours per day on the road. He couldn't just work longer to earn more. A spokesperson for Haypag Lloyd, which reported $4.2 billion in earnings in the first half of 2021, first half, said that it pays $550 to $750 to have a container moved from one Charleston terminal or rail yard to another. The port truckers Tammy spoke with receive $50 to $100 per trip, end quote. In Charleston, those drivers have formed an organization they're calling Coalition 18. But organizing is hard. Not all of the drivers want to be reclassified as employees. Some relish their independent status. South Carolina is one of, if not the most, union-unfriendly states in the country, and that doesn't help. But the drivers are thinking beyond just unionizing. They're considering a cooperative structure, ways to cut out the middlemen, and strategizing with drivers around the country in what they're calling the truckers' movement for justice. One thing is sure, with the nation's headlines suddenly full of the supply chain crisis, organized port truckers could cause some havoc if they decided to stop work. As one Savannah driver told me many years ago, quote, if we stop work in three days, every store would be empty. We could shut down every Walmart. There'd be nothing. No fuel would be moved because trucks move gas, medicine, everything that runs America is carried on a truck. My pick for ARG is The ACLU of Illinois Seeks a Playbook for Acceptable Progressive Union Busting by Hamilton Nolan in, in These Times. The piece is a reflection on an ongoing labor dispute at the Illinois Division of the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU. The staff are trying to form a union and are now embroiled in a fairly typical technical argument in which the administration is pushing back against the proposed bargaining unit, trying to chip away at the set of workers that the collective bargaining unit would, under the workers' proposal, cover. As Nolan puts it, this is kind of a technical squabbling that is unfortunately pretty common whenever workers attempt to form a union. But for the ACLU of Illinois, as a leading civil liberties organization, it signals a troubling example of how workers in the nonprofit world, which is often thought to be insulated from the greedy and oppressive tendencies of private employers, might be getting screwed. Granted, the ACLU of Illinois might be an anomaly here. Many other ACLU staff members at other offices in other states have successfully unionized in recent months, and there are other campaigns still ongoing that do not seem to have met the same degree of resistance. Hundreds of ACLU staff, mostly attorneys, organizers, and communication and campaign professionals, recently won voluntary recognition for ACLU Staff United, representing workers at the New York, Washington, San Francisco, and Raleigh, North Carolina ACLU offices. So at Illinois, this litigious conflict over the proposed bargaining unit smacks of a certain liberal hypocrisy at the core of the so-called nonprofit industrial complex. Nolan writes, quote, restricting the size of a proposed unit is a common tactic by employers who often seek to assert that as many employees as possible are managers or supervisors and are therefore not eligible to be union members. These sorts of negotiations, though cloaked in legalistic language, are usually more about power than about law. 
How fiercely management chooses to argue over vague job descriptions comes down to whether they are comfortable working with a staff union or whether they see it as a priority to make the union as small and weak as possible from the very beginning, unquote. The ACLU of Illinois has sought to axe about 40% of the proposed bargaining unit, claiming they don't qualify because they are in that managerial or supervisory category. So just to step back and look at what the ACLU symbolizes, not only would it make sense for a progressive civil rights and civil liberties organization to be in favor of unionizing on principle, but it also seems like it would be incumbent on the ACLU in particular to support one of the workers' main reasons for wanting a union. Many have expressed concern about the organization ability to diversify its staff. Nolan points out that, quote, employees were particularly upset after an internal staff committee aimed at improving diversity, equity, and inclusion was disbanded, even as the organization lost staff members of color year after year, unquote. Other ACLU employees have spoken to the media in recent months about the challenges the organization was facing in retaining workers of color and other workers belonging to underrepresented groups, such as gender nonconforming individuals and the formerly incarcerated. So the push to unionize at the ACLU isn't just about improving working conditions for staff, but about improving the organization's ability to embody its own values, both in its day-to-day operations and its employment practices. In Illinois, because the conflict over the size of the bargaining unit has dragged on for several months, the workers have recently petitioned the NLRB for a ruling to resolve the dispute. But Nolan writes, it shouldn't be that much of a struggle. And if the ACLU of Illinois succeeds in, quote, drastically restricting the size of the unit, management will have demonstrated a successful playbook for kneecapping a union's power while insisting that you are pro-union in line with your organization's stated values. Nolan's piece includes quotes from an employee who opted to remain anonymous for fear of retaliation, which shows just how high the tensions are within the organization, despite it championing values of democracy. The staffer said that workers had, quote, expected the ACLU to live up to their values, unquote, by voluntarily recognizing the union, but instead they're locked in the kind of legal battle that isn't normally associated with the civil libertarian group. The staff member said, we're deeply disappointed that the ACLU forced us to spend time and resources going before the NLRB. It's not a good use of anyone's time. We'd rather be doing the civil rights work everyone is here to do, unquote. That some workers might fear retaliation for speaking out suggests that the ACLU is just acting like another boss in this case. And it certainly has the right to do so. It is the employer after all. But that means that an organization that has historically used constitutional law to defend people's rights is now using labor law to undermine the organizing efforts of its own workers. We've covered several union drives among the so-called white-collar workers at nonprofit organizations here in Belabored. And time and again, we've seen how the progressive image of these organizations often doesn't match their response to the organizing efforts of their own staff. Instead of voluntary recognition, there's often pushback, and sometimes it does go to the formal National Labor Relations Board process. The workers at the ACLU of Illinois seem to be on track to having some kind of union, but for an organization with union in its name, the ACLU has proven surprisingly resistant to allowing workers to take collective action to exercise their labor rights. The legal spats over the formation of the bargaining unit reveal that, as with workers at for-profit companies, people's rights at work are often more precarious and more limited than the rights guaranteed by the Constitution outside of the workplace. And even a progressive organization might be relatively undemocratic when it comes to your right to union representation. And that's all for this episode of Belabored. Thanks, as always, to Colin and Natasha for making us sound good. And you can get the full archive of our episodes over at dissentmagazine.org at the Belabored Show page. And if you like what you heard, 
please consider supporting us by becoming a patron at our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash belabored. Or you can also support our endeavors at Descent Magazine by subscribing to Descent Magazine over at descentmagazine.org. And please, if you can, leave us a review. It helps us get noticed. And of course, we want to hear from you as we're planning our future episodes. So let us know if you're struggling to unionize your fellow workers at a supposedly progressive nonprofit organization, or maybe you're a media worker on strike somewhere in the world, or maybe your union just voted to approve a new deal with your employer and avert a strike, but you wish you had actually gone on strike instead. Get in touch on the Twitters at hashtag belabored, or you can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belaboured.